Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. This is Dr. Daniel Israel. I'll be your host this morning. And I'm very happy today to welcome a special guest who joins me from Pretoria, and that is Dr. Shafali Joshni, who is, and I hope I've said your name correctly, um, who is a diabetologist. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. So, so the reason why I say, um, you know, I, 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 certainly, I certainly feel it, even if I'm not saying it, how, how happy I am to have you, is this is a topic that is of particular interest to me because I'm a diabetologist as well. And perhaps for the listeners will unpack um, what a diabetologist is. And we've certainly all seen that diabetes is a topic that has really exploded in the world in the last, say, 10 to 15 years, but continues to explode, both in terms of the impact that it has on on society and in terms of the great um, advances that are being made in terms of its management, treatment, cure, if you want to talk about cure, although that's a whole discussion all in itself. So um, w- w- welcome to the show, um, and it's great to have you, Dr. Josh. And I just want to ask you, maybe we can start off by just telling our Listeners, just a little bit about um, what 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 diabetes is and what and what a diabetologist does. Okay, so diabetes is a condition where blood glucose values are not well controlled, and then you have two types of diabetes. You have type one diabetes and type two diabetes. Type one diabetes is is not genetic and usually happens in in younger adults and uh, younger children. And type 2 diabetes is genetic, and that affects approximately 80% of our population. And um, in this population group, the problem is that the beta cells in the pancreas over time decline. And therefore, patients then need to then start medication to assist their body to control their blood glucose values um, as the years go on. Most often, type 2 diabetes is then diagnosed uh, when the patient is around the age of between 30 and 40. And a diabetologist helps the patient then to maintain these blood glucose values in order to prevent complications in the future. Okay, great. So that, that's a really great start at the beginning. So I, I think that's, and I, I'm, this interview will be a bit different because you and I can both have do this as a discussion since we both do this on a daily basis. You do it exclusively, I think. I think that you, you only do diabetes yes, patients, which is really amazing. I, I am a GP and I focus, but, I, but a big part of my practice is diabetes. So I think what you've made very important points is that interestingly, diabetes really should be perhaps these diseases or, in, or they're not really diseases, conditions should have different names because we know that type 1 diabetes is largely autoimmune mediated, which means that a person's cells I'm just so our listeners know to get to get the background uh, education done. Is in your body there is a pancreas. Your pancreas has beta cells. The beta cells make insulin. Insulin is a protein that lets, um, give you in simple terms, sugar or glucose move from your bloodstream into your cells, and therefore makes it usable. Now, type one, as you so clearly said. Your body is fight your own beta cells and you stop making your own insulin altogether, in which case you need to take your own insulin. And that normally happens in younger people. Type 2 diabetes, which perhaps has been the pandemic of the, of the century, we could, one could say, is where 
um, a person's beta cells start making insulin that, are le- that is less effective and less in quantity and quality compared to the, the, the norm. And therefore, it also doesn't work as well as unlocking the cells and getting the glucose into the body. And therefore, you get an accumulation of, of glucose. And your job, as you so well said, is to, is to manage that. Now, we, can I ask you, Dr. Joshua, we, we see so much in conditions at the moment. We, we've all heard about asthma. We've all heard about um, high blood pressure and uh, HIV, TB. But it seems like diabetes really has taken over um, the world. There, there's just almost everybody knows someone in their immediate family or who's impacted by diabetes. Why has, let's focus on type 2 diabetes for the meantime, why has type 2 diabetes become such an epidemic um, in the world? And, you know, what, what, what are the causes of it? Is there a way that we can we can prevent it? So just before we go to the ad break, just very briefly, can we, can we just touch on why this has become such a big issue in the world? Okay, so I think one of the main reasons why this has become an issue is because of um, poor eating habits, lack of physical activity. Some people blame urbanization and a, and a Western diet, which uh, which has a lot of refined carbohydrates. And um, then, of course, there's the role of stress. And stress also plays um, a big role in, in, um, in diabetes management as well as the presentation of diabetes. In terms of why diabetes seems to be increasing, I think that's perhaps the reason. Uh, we're not focusing so much on, on healthy eating and um, we have very little physical activity. Um, the other thing where we find that diabetes may be, uh, it seems it's an artificial um, maybe inflation of, of diabetes, perhaps is because people have more access to health care. So we're screening more patients and therefore we're, we're picking up more patients. In the past, and if you're looking at South Africa specifically, um, not many people had access to medical aids, etc. Not many people had life insurance. Um, and now there's a lot more people who are then going in for their, for their life insurance checks. And then for the first time, they find out I'm diabetic. And, and they, they thought that the tiredness they experienced or the thirst and, and, you know, the maybe blurred vision, they attribute all of that to a bit of stress and working too hard and that kind of thing. So we're picking up diabetes more because of programs such as these that actually um, uh, inform the patient that they should be screening more if they have a family history of diabetes. Okay, great. So those are some of the some of the, the intro causes. We'll be back with you straight after this break. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. This is Dr. Daniel Israel, and I'm your host this morning. And we're interviewing Dr. Joshni, who is a diabetologist practicing in private practice, managing diabetes patients um, in her private practice in Pretoria for the past 21 years. And this month is Diabetes Awareness Month. We've just had Diabetes, World Diabetes Day. We know that diabetes is a big ep- epidemic that has is, is, is gone across the world and, and um, so many interesting topics to discuss here. Uh, we really could go far beyond the show in this discussion, but I'll try and move through the topics so that, so that we're able to cover as much as we can. And Dr. Joshny, you just told us about how di- diabetes is really the symptom or the outcome of like a very sedentary type of society where because people are exercising, less, uh, eating more. We, I certainly once went to a, a whole seminar on this and they used to talk about how olden day man or the caveman, pre-dating man used to probably eat three times 
times a week and now we eat three, four times a day has certainly changed the physiology of, of how we metabolize our food. Um, and we certainly seen in the developed worlds, how the developed countries, how, you know, BMI has gone up and certainly this must be linked to diabetes. Um, I, I think it's important to look, so that probably leads us into what you're talking about. I mean, we all know that to manage diabetes, where, where again, let me just recap, you get an accumulation of sugar in your, in your vessels. And, and the problem with that sugar is the damage it does to your organs. And we'll come back to that, but let's just mix it up a bit. And so to manage that, um, there are certain, there are medications that can be taken. But beside, before we even get onto the pharmacological management, let's talk a little bit about the lifestyle management. So, so, so that, I always tell patients it doesn't help to just take medicine. That, that is not going to control your diabetes if you're diabetic. You need to do more than that. Can you tell us a little bit about like the few prongs of diabetes care that really will make a diabetic controlled or even prevent diabetes in someone who is pre-diabetic? Okay, so so let's start with the, with the pre-diabetes, right? So a patient who has a, a family history of diabetes um, needs to obviously screen regularly to make sure that uh, they identify um, when they've presented with diabetes in the first place. But as you correctly point out, um, diet remains and diet and exercise remains the cornerstone of therapy for diabetes. It is said that approximately 80% of control of diabetes comes from eating the right food, right? The other 20% is taking the medication and being compliant to therapy. How to manage diabetes is then uh, solely related to, number one, the food you eat, because I always tell correctly, then you're putting less strain on your beta cell. Your beta cell then needs, needs to produce less insulin, and you can preserve that beta cell for as long as possible. This, of course, applies to type 2 diabetes, where the beta cell function, which is declining over time, eventually will lead to the patient going on to insulin because the beta cells are not able to produce enough insulin then to control their blood sugar values. And if they eat properly, they can, number one, prevent the onset of diabetes, and number two, if they are already diabetic, it can help them to delay the onset onto, uh, delay the onset of uh, insulin injections, which most people fear. So preventing diabetes, number one, revolves mainly around eating the right food. There isn't a, a you know, a poly pill that can, can do this. If there was a pill with exercise in a bottle, <laughs> I would certainly do that. But um, with all of us leading busy lives, it's difficult to manage this. And, um, if you can control your diet and just make sure you buy healthier stuff, uh, low eye kind of foods and keep that in your, in your grocery cupboard, whatever you choose is going to be right. You know, uh, instead of having all the, what we call the nice goodies and then be tempted to eat it, just have good stuff in your diet. And then you can help yourself to manage diabetes better, uh, without too much of trouble. There are a lot of websites out there that can help you in terms of choosing the right food. Um, there's, there's lots of apps now on, uh, um, that you can get. Plus Instagram has a lot of healthy eating um, uh, options, which they give you recipes, etc. So we need to use this effectively. So I think you make some very valid um, and interesting points. I mean, I, 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 certainly, I don't know, this is where for, for the average person listening to this show, um, the majority of listeners are probably aren't diabetic because thankfully we still have more diabetic, non-diabetics than diabetics. But what, philosophically, one could say that we're all in a continuum to becoming diabetic if we just allow ourselves to become 
bigger, lazier, and fatter than we were yesterday. So the reality is that I always tell patients that you've got to view your diet as a balanced diet. You've got to have I remember, so, so I'm actually, I'm a type one diabetic myself. So I've been in this game on a, on a personal basis for many years as well. And I remember the old recommendations of diet were always to have a predominantly carbohydrate based diet. Um, that was low GI and so complex carbohydrates, mainly carbohydrate based. And we've really seen a change in that, in that we know that people think that diabetics can't eat sugar. And there's a special diabetic diet is a non-sugar diet. And that is absolutely not true. What really is true is that diabetics should be having a low carbohydrates diet. But then again, a balanced diet, not going very heavy on protein, because we know that, for example, that um, puts a strain on the kidneys. And I always tell my patients that if you're eating a healthy diet with, with, a, with, a, with a balance between food groups and you're managing your quantities at the same time, that's how you're having a so-called diabetic diet. And this applies to pre-diabetics, which is the, and, and, nor, and people who aren't diabetic, as well as diabetic patients. This certainly would go a long way in terms of diabetes management. Um, I'm not sure. I see that Dr. Joshni seems to possibly have dropped off here. We'll just wait for her to reconnect. But in the meantime, since I um, know a bit more about this topic, uh, I'll just run through, through through a few more things here. So, so, so there are three basic um, pillars, so to speak, in diabetes care. The one is diet, which we've discussed a bit. The second is exercise. We all know that in order to to make one's cells more sensitive to insulin, which is the predominant problem in diabetes, is that you don't have enough insulin to 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 produce or you're not making enough effective insulin but doing irregular exercise you're actually sensitizing your cells and we see a, a real real drop in glucose levels and average glucose levels in patients who are exercising versus patients who are not exercising and the third is um is medication so, I mean, I'll just wait for Dr. Josty to rejoin us to talk a little bit about what the medication options are that exist out there. But um, certainly there has been a real development in the world and real um, advances in terms of medicines, whereas when maybe 20 years ago, one could get three or four different drugs. Now there must be, you know, an excess of different classes, 10, 15 different classes of, of, of medicines or types of medicines on the drugs in terms of mixes as well that that help um control diabetes so um what, what i think is perhaps we can take an ad break now and straight after the ad break we'll hopefully have dr joshley back on the line and we will carry on with the next part of the of the show hi fm your station of choice since 2008 welcome back to the show we're Interviewing today, Dr. Joshni, a diabetologist in, in private in, in Pretoria. I'm glad to have you. Well, I thought I had her back on the line. She seems to have gone off again. So this really is the, the best show that this could happen to me on because the truth is that I, I do know about this topic. So I'm just telling the guys in the studio, I think what we'll do is when she's off, I'll do the parts of the education and then we'll just like, we'll, we'll do some music in between. So um, I, I, let me talk a little bit about the type of of treatment that exists um, for, for diabetes today. 
So often patients come to my rooms and they say to me, look, I'm, doctor, I'm happy to take anything if you, if you diagnose diabetes in me. I just don't want to take in, injections because they see injections as like the last rung of, of, of lo- almost like the last resort is that they take something that would inject them. But the reality, so firstly, the good news is that there's, math, there's a lot that exists on the market that are not injections. But one must also understand that insulin in itself is a natural hormone that's produced by your body. And very often to take something that's natural and produced by your body itself is something that is really um, great for your body. You're not adding in an external chemicals, so to speak, that, 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 that changes anything. So, so, so there, there are various treatments on, on, uh, out there. The first is to make your cells more sensitized to insulin. And the most famous medicine there is something called glucophage, which many of us have heard about. Glucophage is used commonly by people, sometimes even inappropriately in pre-diabetes, to, to make someone who's insulin resistant more, more sensitive to insulin. But it also helps largely in diabetes. And there are various studies out there that have, for, for, for many, uh, over many years have, that have shown cardiovascular risk protection with the use of glucophage. So by taking glucophage, not only are you reducing your blood sugar levels, but you are also reducing your long-term risk of getting cardiovascular disease. The downside of that, and this is important to stress, is that by taking glucophage, you, 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 in life, one shouldn't just go out and take medicine that one doesn't need because it's something like glucophage, which is the real medicine that's called metformin, needs to be metabolized by the kidneys and if you take metformin and your body is continually metabolizing metformin when you don't need it you're putting a strain on your kidneys that you don't need so there are very definite guidelines out there that correlate as to what your blood sugar should be in order to justify the advantages of metformin over its negative effects or risks so to speak so so that's the story with glucophage and, and metformin now, I see Dr. Josh, he's just managed to get back onto online, which is great. And I'm just telling the listeners about the different types of treatments out there. And I've covered glucophage in, in terms of its cardiovascular um, advantages and disadvantages and that it is sometimes used in early disease and possibly pre-diabetes, although sometimes inappropriately so. And I haven't gone on to anything else. So perhaps you want to take over the next part of this question from there and talk about what other, we spoke a bit about before when you were off about exercise and diet and our glucophage, assuming someone's not controlled just on that, what what, what, what would you then do in terms of trying to get their, their sugars controlled? Okay, so I missed a little bit of the discussion because uh, as usual, connectivity issues. Um, but w- when you talk about not control, let me backtrack a little bit because I'm not sure what I've missed. But um, what defines poor control? Poor control is when your blood glucose values go above 10 millimoles per liter. That's when you're testing your blood sugar on your machine and the value goes above 10. Then you know that the sugars are out of control. And the other way to monitor control is then also for your doctor to check your HbA1c. And this should be done at least every three months um, or six months. So if your HbA1c is above 7, and you're following a good diet and you've already started on metformin, then most often um, your doctor will then add therapy to that. And there's various options in terms of therapy uh, based on, on what issues you may have. Uh, most often doctor would then add another tablet if you have issues with cardiovascular disease or if um, you, you want to lose some weight. 
There are therapies then available, which are injectable therapies that can help you to lose weight as well as control your blood sugar values and give you primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. So if your HbA once he goes above seven, your doctor needs to know so that he can help you, he or she can help you to bring your blood sugar values down by adding therapy to whatever you're on at the moment. If your diet and exercise is not right, um, sort that out first before you start adding other therapy. Because um, as you mentioned earlier, um, without a good diet, even any pill that you take is not going to help to bring the blood sugar values down as well as it could um, should you be following a good uh, diet program and exercise program. And, and I think you make a very interesting, uh, bring up a very interesting topic on that of HbA1c because the average patient does not understand the difference between a random glucose and an HbA1c. And I think that HbA1c has probably been our most valuable tool over the last, sure, two, three decades now in terms of um, diabetes control. Do, do you want to just explain a little bit more to the listeners about what HbA1c is and why it's so much more of an important number, so to speak, to follow than the normal glucose and how the number on HbA1c is not the same as the number on the glucose? Okay, um, so what HbA1c is, is a protein that carries glucose, right? So HbA1c gives you your average blood sugar values over the last three to six months. And what random blood sugar value is, is that value on a machine. So if you've uh, cheated today and you've, you've had an extra fat cook or a piece of mava pudding or something like that, your blood sugar value could go up to beyond 10, maybe 12, 15. But that is just the value for now. So I find that with my patients uh, who test their blood sugar values on their home blood glucose monitors, uh, the day they, they tend to have their social functions and um, they know that they, they're going to indulge in something else, they don't test their blood sugar values. And then everything looks fantastic when I download their home blood glucose meters because they're omitting testing uh, when they know the blood sugar is going to be high. And and people do that. Sometimes they just want to keep the doctor happy. I don't know if that, that cheating is effective. And however, if I do the HbA1Cs and the HbA1C sits at perhaps 9.8% and the home blood glucose monitor averages at about 6%, then I know this person is not testing at certain times. Perhaps it's because of habit. You know, some people just test their sugars when they get a chance. They you taking your blood glucose meter with you on New Year's Eve, I assume, and um, you're not going to be checking it middle of the night. Um, and that's perhaps when your blood sugar values are going higher. So doing HbA1Cs gives you the control um, or gives you the, the tool to look at the control over 24 hours over the last three to six months. So HbA1C is a very good monitoring tool for the doctor. Especially if patients don't even test their sugars regularly, that is the best way then to um, manage diabetes. The other thing about HbA1c that's quite interesting is that if the HbA1c goes above 7%, then your risk of getting uh, complications of diabetes increases. So there were studies done in the past, specifically looking at a study called the UKPDS study, which uh, looked at diabetic patients over time, and they found that if the HbA1c was above 7, their risk of complications of diabetes was higher. So it's not only about um, about 
and controlling the blood sugar for now, as in your number now, but it's also about reducing complications in the future. Which is the most interesting part of diabetes is that you can have your sugar feed, you can be a patient who ran sugars at 12 or 13, or you can be even an undiagnosed type 2 diabetes diabetic and feel nothing. You can feel absolutely fine. Never go to the doctor, as you said, in the time when we didn't screen as much and know nothing of it. But we know that over time, the accumulation of sugar in your in your glucose will will damage your vessels. And the UK PDS study, which was on type two diabetes, and the DCC study, which was on type one type diabetes, one. Over, over a long period of time, both showed that people who run HbA1c's over seven percent or higher higher values, even though they may feel fine over years, are at higher higher risks and do develop complications. And I think over the after the next break. Perhaps we should spend a little bit of time about speaking about, you know, what, what's the big deal? Like, what, why, why even control the sugar? Because if we talk about these complications. What we, we know that we mustn't scare patients about complications, but what are these complications, and why do we need to put so much effort into controlling diabetes, um, and not just kind of let it run its own course? So perhaps let's do that straight after this break. We'll be back with you shortly. Hi FM, your station of choice since two thousand and eight. Welcome back to Duskim Medical Monday. I'm Dr. Daniel Israel, and I'm interviewing today Dr. Joshni, a diabetologist who's very experienced and has spent many years helping and controlling diabetic patients um, in her private practice in Pretoria. And she's teaching all us all about diabetes and its impacts on our lives. And we got to a point where we were now discussing um, what's the big Skill or need to control diabetes. We've, we've spoken about the fact that there were two big studies done in amongst others that showed if you don't control your diabetes, you, it would have some complications, but we don't know what that means. In other words, we always hear Dr. Joshna about how diabetes care or diabetic patients get this wrong with them and that wrong with them. And then I have other patients who say, so if I get diabetes, does that mean that I'm going to get heart failure, heart attacks and um, kidney failure and amputations and you know, certainly there's a lot of fear and a lot of um, confusion around this. Can you talk to us about what diabetes complications are and does everybody get... Okay, so diabetes complications are basically complications that affect... So what I uh, tell my patients, it, uh, uh, sorry, affect the blood vessels. So what I tell my patients is that any part of your body that has a good blood supply um, is going to be affected if your blood sugar values are higher if your HbA1c is above 7. So you get two separate groups of complications, basically divided into microvascular complications, which means complications of the small vessels in your body, like the small vessels in your kidney and the smaller blood vessels in your eye. Um, Then you get macrovascular complications, and those complications are heart attacks, strokes. And um, what then happens is that if your blood sugar values are above um, 10 on average, uh, your, 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 blood, your plasma glucose values, or if your HbA1c is above 7, then the inner lining of the artery get almost damaged by the higher blood sugar values. So what I tell my patients is that high blood glucose values are almost equivalent to acid to the inner lining of your arteries, such that if your blood sugar values are high, they can have the tendency to make tiny holes or bleeding in these areas, and therefore, uh, patients can develop then complications such as stroke, uh, heart attacks, um, 
the, the men can develop erectile dysfunction. People are then at an increased risk of amputations of their feet. So those are the complications you're looking at. If the complications were just simple, you know, like uh, perhaps uh, your tooth fell out or your hair falls out, that's not such a big deal. But these complications, you can imagine having a stroke and then being confined to a wheelchair or getting blind and you can't read, you can't drive, you can't watch TV, um, then it, it seriously affects your life. So these complications, um, unfortunately, are debilitating. And therefore, management of diabetes then becomes very, very important. Which is so important to understand that the complications of diabetes are not something that develop overnight. And even if someone's been an uncontrolled time, there, there certainly is a lot of space and room to really turn over a new leaf and get these things under control. But 100%. the idea is, yeah, is to reduce the risk of of each of these complications. And a person who lives with well-controlled diabetes is basically living with a condition that's, that they're basically approximating themselves with somebody who who doesn't have diabetes, certainly on a type 1 perspective. On a type 2 perspective, we know that diabetes often has concomitant conditions that come with it, which we'll talk about shortly. But the point is that if you control your diabetes, you are reducing your risk significantly both shown in, in theory and in the in the studies. And all the things that people hear about in terms of, uh, as you've right, as so well said, the macrovascular stroke and heart attack and also micro, which is eyes, um, kidneys, impotence, um, um, uh, peripheral neuropathy, are all things that can be prevented by, by looking after your sugar um, with the diabetes team. So I, I think that... Um, while I touch on the idea of a diabetes team, I mean, this is something that that really is interesting to see how one condition needs quite a few people to manage it. Can you talk to, to us about what is an integrative diabetes team? I mean, how many people do you, do you need to manage diabetes in a, in a patient? And, you know, is it just about going to the doctor or are there more role players here? Look, it, it would be ideal if your doctor could manage everything. But you know, doctors, when you get to their rooms, they've got their, their five, ten minutes allocated to you and it's in and out, get your script kind of thing. And therefore, we need um, allied healthcare workers to help um, help to manage the diabetic patient. So part of the team is, um, number one, a diabetes educator. And um, these diabetes educators offer free services generally, and, and they help you to understand your treatment, to understand how to inject insulin, how to manage hyperglycemic or hypoglycemic episodes. Then um, in the team is a dietitian who can assist you with choosing the correct diet uh, for the for the problems that you may have. Um, some diabetic patients have kidney failure, then they require diets that are not only diabetic friendly, but also lower in protein. Then, of course, if you have um, a higher risk for uh, heart disease, then the doctor would also look after uh, blood values. Then you may need a diet that is lower in fat. So that's where the dietitian comes into play. In order to manage your feet, uh, to screen your feet for diabetic pain, uh, uh, diabetic complications such as uh, peripheral arterial disease and nephropathy, you then have a podiatrist that can be part of the team. Then can help you to look after your feet, um, manage uh, your neuropathy, help you to get the correct shoes to prevent um, uh, perhaps um, corns and and uh, 
and, um, you know, uh, decrease in circulation by wearing the wrong shoes. So the podiatrist then screens your feet for uh, high-risk feet for diabetic complications. And then, of course, um, that's the primary care that you need. Uh, in terms of tertiary care, when you already have complications, like, for example, retinopathy or um, heart disease or nephropathy, then the cardiologist, the ophthalmologist, um, and the nephrologist then comes into play. But the ophthalmologist has an important role in, in primary care as well because diabetic patients need to be screening their eyes for diabetic retinopathy at least once a year after being diagnosed with diabetes. And these screening tools help to prevent the patient from going on to full-blown um, blindness. So these sort of healthcare workers are vital in managing the diabetic patient. And many medical aids um, do actually encourage patients to have at least a dietitian visit once a year, a podiatry check once a year, uh, um, ophthalmology test once a year. And, and this is included in most medical aids. So we should be taking advantage of this uh, in terms of preventing the complications of diabetes. And we certainly know that this all stems out of the, it's not a philosophy, but out of the real proven adage that prevention is better than cure. And we've seen that even from the medical aids perspective, that even from a, from a financial model, it works out much better to prevent yes. these problems in patients than to treat them. Now, um, you bring great. up a very important point about primary prevention in terms of ophthalmology. And just to explain to, to the people listening to the show that you, um, Dr. Joshley touched us now on microvascular complications of diabetes. And th- that means the small vessels in your body Get it, get affected by this acid, as she puts it, that, which is the sugar that accumulates in your body. Some of the smallest vessels in your body are in your eyes. So the back of your eyes, where you can't see at all, there are tiny, tiny vessels. And when those vessels are exposed to higher sugar levels over a period of time, they start to show certain signs. And if those signs, as she just said so well, are picked up early, you can prevent blindness. Now the point is that often as, as GPs and diabetologists, we pick up diabetes from people who go and have their eyes checked from at an optometrist or an ophthalmologist. And when they have their eyes checked, they find that either from acutely high sugar at the time or just because of having their retinas checked at the back, there are diabetic signs in the eye. So um, very important point that there is a very, um, that's one of the earliest roles in, in diabetic complication prevention is checking the eyes frequently. Um, I, I touched just now, Dr. Joshni, on the other diseases that come with diabetes. So we know that, you know, if you look at a diabetic who, we, 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 there's a certain picture sometimes of a type 2 diabetic. And we, sometimes when someone comes with a new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, I let, they land up leaving my office with three other diagnoses on the same day. And they say, oh gosh, I came in here for one thing and I've left with four. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. more about that? Okay, so, so most often the diabetic patient often also has um, hypertensive disease, right? So they have high blood pressure and then they, uh, the high blood pressure needs to be managed. We check patients' cholesterol values and if their LDL values are above 1.8, so if your, or if your cholesterol, um, if they test your cholesterol and the number of your total cholesterol is about 3.5 in diabetic patients, then most often you're going to be walking out with a whole host of medications now to help you to bring your blood pressure down, bring your cholesterol down. And then lots of the other medications that, that patients leave with when they come and see you, are, for example, treatment for peripheral neuropathy, which you touched on earlier. 
<coughs> so peripheral neuropathy is where patients experience a burning sensation in their feet or they complain of numbness in their feet. And this could be because of uncontrolled blood glucose values, or it could be because of permanent changes to their, their, their nerves in their feet or in their hands caused by uncontrolled diabetes over a period of time. So there they are some therapies that, that can help with that as well. Uh, but um, the, the screening for, um, for uh, kidney failure, etc., is very important at that first visit to your doctor. And it's very simple to do. I mean, it's a lab test, basically, and all doctors should be doing it. If you're a diabetic and your doctor isn't doing it, perhaps just say, I've, I've listened to a radio show and the doctor mentioned that I need to do an HbA1c at least every six months. I need to be doing a kidney screening test uh, once a year, and I need to be checking my uh, cholesterol values at least every six months. Then, you know, you're covering the major complications of diabetes. So you're covering the heart disease, you're covering the, the kidney failure and the retinopathy. And just by keeping your HbA1c's down, you can uh, prevent these complications in the first place. Um, what he said is that even a 1% reduction in HbA1c can reduce your risk of getting heart attacks, or so specifically uh, myocardial infarctions, by 14%. It can reduce your risk of um, amputations by 43%. So even just bringing the HbA1c down by 1% is very significant in, in preventing and um, reducing your risk of these complications of diabetes. Which is exactly why diabetes is really a, a vascular disease, as you, as you, as you put it, putting so clearly here. And, and I actually just found it interesting. I was thinking the other day about how we seen, we saw in COVID-19, how the more we learn about COVID-19, we see that COVID-19 is more and more of a vascular disease and not just a respiratory disease. One could say a totally different disease, but the same thing about diabetes. And I mean, that's perhaps because the makeup of man is really vessels throughout the body. And it's all about the different things that can go wrong in the vessels. Maybe in the case of COVID, about clotting, whereas in the case of diabetes, it's about damage to the endothelium, which is the lining of the vessels. Now, um, as Dr. Josh, you just told us that we don't want people to be clapped, so to speak, with more than one insult to their vessels. So someone who's sitting with an LDL, which is a bad cholesterol that's high, already at risk of vascular disease. Someone who smokes is already at risk of vascular disease. Now they're going to have diabetes and high sugar and other risks. So this metabolic syndrome, so to speak, which we call it where a person will have hypertension, diabetes, um, hyperlipidemia, which is cholesterol altogether, is a common thing we see. And we're really trying to look after their vessels um, from the minute they walk into our office, as, you, as you've told us. So I think what we should do is now if we can take a short break and when we get back from the break, perhaps we can spend a few minutes talking about type 1 diabetes as well and some of the really exciting things and innovative things that are used in type 1 and type 2 in terms of monitoring sugar and controlling diabetes even from like a like a um, artificial perspective, so to speak. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Diskin Medical Monday. I'm Dr. Daniel Israel, and I'm interviewing Dr. Joshni, a diabetes a diabetologist, um, GP specializing in, who's done her master's in diabetes and has dedicated her medical um, career to the management of this big disease entity that's really taken over our world. I thought we should just touch for the, some remaining minutes of the show on the huge advances that have been made in diabetes in the last uh, 
10 to 15 years or so, maybe even more so in the last few years. And I'll just share like a, a personal uh, counter about how I became diabetic in somewhere around 1994, 1995. And I remember then there were big glucometers that, that uh, one had to purchase and carry around with, I don't know how long they took, 20 seconds, even that was good in those days to give a reading. Um, that was the, the most accurate way one could control or monitor one's sugar. And even then there was great excitement because there was no longer syringes and one could use a pen to inject oneself. Looking at, uh, as a type one diabetic, looking at my monitoring and, and medicine and control now, it's a completely different ball game, completely. Um, we really are embracing technology in the management of diabetes, more so probably than in other fields in medicine. Do you want to comment on this a little bit first? Yes. Um, so, well, in the last couple of years, there's been an explosion of new things in diabetes, um, from devices to newer insulins to once weekly therapies that not only reduce um, HbA1c's, but they also prevent a lot of hypoglycemia and, and weight gain associated with the with um, insulin therapy in diabetes. So we've got newer analog insulins that are safer to use that give you less hypoglycemia. And analog insulins are basically, um, the analog basal insulins now are so fantastic that um, they they don't have fluctuations in, in their pharmacokinetic profile. Therefore, patients have more predictable uh, responses to the insulin that they take. They have less hypoglycemia and they can inject uh, with a little bit more flexibility. So that's in terms of the therapies. We now have once-weekly GLP-1 preparations that uh, help to prevent cardiovascular disease, as well as um, they, they do have a little benefit in, in um, helping you to lose weight. And then in terms of devices, we've had devices for type 1 diabetics available for a very long time, like, for example, the, the insulin pumps. So this is a device that delivers insulin to your system directly without having you to inject multiple times a day. So insulin pumps have been around for a very long time. But one of the, the newer things that um, uh, that have come onto the market in terms of devices for diabetes is um, a device called a CGMS device. And CGMS stands for Continuous Glucose Monitoring System. This device actually recently won um, the Nobel Prize for the best medical invention that made the greatest impact in improving medical care in diabetes. So the CGMS device monitors your blood sugar every two to three minutes, um, and it gives you a, a, a value of your blood sugar, not only what's happening now. So when you test your blood sugar on your home blood glucose meter, you get a value, say, for example, 6.1. And then you need to go for a meeting or you, you're going to drive maybe back from Johannesburg to Pretoria after work, something like that. You're not sure the, what the traffic's going to be like. And you're thinking, ah, I wonder if I should eat something or you think I'm going to manage with the 6.1. Now, with the CGMS device, it not only gives you the value, but it can also tell you what's happening with that value. So if that sugar value is increasing, uh, then the device has an arrow that points upwards that says glucose is actually increasing. Then you say, okay, I'm safe. I don't need to eat. If the, if the arrow is uh, steady and pay, uh, uh, pointing in a, in a horizontal direction, um, then it tells you your glucose is steady and it's staying nicely that way. If the arrow points downwards on the CGMS device, it tells you that your blood glucose is dropping quickly. And then you know you need to do something. 
So it not only gives you a value for now, it also gives you some uh, predictive data. So it tells you what can happen next, what you need to be doing next. Some CGMS devices are so brilliant. Um, well, of course, with the CGMS device that I forgot to mention, you don't prick your finger. You wear a disc either on your arm or some part of your body, and that disc stays on your on your body for about 14 days. And you change the disc after 14 days, and the, the information from that disc, while it's monitoring your blood sugar over three to 400 times a day, can be sent either to your, your phone via an app or to a reader, a CGMS reader, and you can look at the value of your blood sugar at any time without pricking your finger. Um, so at, at any point in time, if you can um, swipe the device past your disk, uh, your CGMS disk, you get a glucose value. Um, other CGMS uh, devices are so brilliant that in type 1 diabetes, where patients are at an increased risk of hypoglycemic events, the CGMS device can detect if your blood sugar values are dropping. And if it goes below a certain uh, preset uh, glucose value, um, like maybe you set the glucose value at, at 4 and your blood sugar values drops below that value, the CGMS device can actually send a message to your phone as an alarm or to one other significant person. So, for example, if there's a type 1 diabetic uh, child and um, the, 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 the little kid has taken his um, insulin for the morning, off he goes to school with his lunchbox and he's at school and he plays and he forgets to eat lunch, which sometimes happens. Then what you find is that um, a message will then go to the parents and to uh, maybe the teacher and warn them that the blood sugar value is dropping, you need to do something. If the child's sleeping at night and the blood sugar drops, the parents can be rest assured that it will trigger an alarm and warn them that this uh, child's blood sugar values are dropping while they're sleeping, giving you a bit of a restful sleep and um, uh, can prevent serious complications that can arise of hypoglycemia in a type 1 diabetic. And, and this is such exciting stuff, Dr. Joshny, because it really has changed diabetics' lives. I mean, we, it, it sounds to someone who doesn't know anything about it so complicated, but really, as you said, it's a disc on the arm or in the tummy, a cell phone, which you all have on us anyway, and literally almost like a semi-autopilot. And people with pumps have pumps that switch off by themselves and even now increase insulin by themselves. Now, diabetes, as, as we've heard from you today, is such a broad topic. The things we haven't touched on are hypoglycemia, how to manage hypoglycemia if you're not diabetic, um, diabetes in pregnancy, um, why diabetes is so important to control in pregnancy, um, how to work out whether you're at risk of becoming diabetic and can it be prevented. There's just so much to discuss. We'll have to bring you back onto the show for that. You've been an absolutely wonderful guest. And I just think for all of us, this is something that's really, that we understand now why across the world there's a diabetes month and a diabetes day. But um, let, let me just take this opportunity of thanking you for making the time to be with us today. Thank you for, for, for your endless work. I've known of you and for, for many years, and there are many, many patients who, who gain so much from you. And we, we really, really appreciate the community appreciates what you do for them, but also you giving of your time today to just educate people about this interesting, irrelevant and moving field in medicine. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you to the listeners also for giving me this opportunity to share some of my knowledge. And I hope all of you have complication-free diabetes in the future. Thank you. Have a great day.